Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined first and foremost on today's programme by Cliff McEntee. Cliff is a chartered surveyor and director at Chelsea Artisans Limited, a manufacturer and installer of architectural glass products based in Croydon. Cliff, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme. It's a real pleasure having you with us. Um, The whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering that today's generation of business leaders is going through one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say, in the shape of the COVID-19 pandemic, I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask just to what extent the pandemic has affected you and your operations over the last few months. It's affected us significantly. Um, it's it's pretty much all-consuming at the moment. Um, the lockdown was a watershed moment, really. Uh, we stopped operating for effectively six months, uh, six weeks. Um, slowly um, started to bring people back off of the furlough scheme from mid-May onwards. Um, uh, but since then, we've been operating probably only on about uh, 50 to 60 percent of our pre-lockdown capacity and workload levels, um, and that's sort of been maintained through for the last uh, two, three months. Um, and the outlook is very uncertain. Um, the, the biggest issue that I think we're, we're going to face in the short term is going to be the end of the furlough scheme. Um, and what we do once um, the government support at that point uh, ceases um, and whether we will have adequate workload to keep everybody going. So, yeah, it's been a, it's been a definite and significant uh, change, something that I think um, myself and my business partner, we've been running this business for nearly 30 years and it's probably, you know, we've been through some ups and downs during that period as well. Uh, but this is, you know, beyond anything that we've experienced uh, in that period of time. And just how do you think your industry is going to be affected by this pandemic in the long term over the course of the uh, the next uh, few months? The long term or over the next few months, do you mean? So looking at essentially um, the, um, I suppose, the longer term future, I suppose, if we think about years um, in the first term um, instance, um, how do you think, how do you see the industry changing as a result of this? Um, I think the um, the industry will, uh, uh, the industry was going to um, suffer. <laughs> uh, the construction game uh, is one that, um, relies quite heavily on you know, a, 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 um, a sort of confidence level for investment over the long term. And I think what we're finding at the moment is that whilst we're still active and people are asking us for quotations, commitment to projects um, is is the thing that is really being held back Um I think a lot of firms are still actively planning developments, whether they're new builds, whether they're refurbishments, um, and uh, but what they're not doing is actually committing to it. And I think you can understand that in the sense that why would you commit to 
you know, even a small scale building project unless you really had to at the moment because everybody's so uncertain about the um, you know that either the short or the medium term outlook. So I think in in the short term, if you call it six to twelve months, I think it's it's going to be um, very very uncertain times. Beyond that, um, who knows? It depends what happens in the next six to twelve months as to what will follow on from that. And in your capacity as the leader of um, your business, even though it's been a very difficult and a very challenging time, would you say that there's anything positive that you can take from this experience? Maybe something that you've learned from this experience of crisis management, if we call it that. Um, yeah, good question. Um, I, I think actually, as you go through your business life, you you um, you acquire and absorb a hell of a lot of information and experience and knowledge that uh, you don't actually really appreciate you've got until you face these kind of um, situations. Um, and I think that um, whilst we've no doubt learned something and developed something during this particular crisis, um, probably we're we're utilising the skills and knowledge and experience that we've derived over 25, 30 years of running a business um, in, in how we've uh, adapted and reacted to the challenges that we're facing. Um, and I think that whatever lessons we're learning at the moment um, will be you know, um, helping us to develop our sort of skills level, our experience base for what comes afterwards. So I'm not sure that we're, we're actually learning anything right at the moment that we're putting into practice. Mm. Um, we're, we're probably utilising what we've known before um, and um, yeah, that's helping us to sort of make the decisions that we're, we're trying to make and that's, that seems to have been the most difficult thing for, for us as a business is uh, mm. planning how we move through this um, period and you know what what plans and decisions we can make to try and position the business as best as we can um, to to adapt to you know falling workloads and uncertainty over future workloads. And I suppose that when we're in sort of a position where we're constantly having to adapt and think on our feet, um, sometimes we can take decisions which, in hindsight, may not necessarily be the best ones at the time, but are just based on the advice that's out there and you think is the best course of action at that particular point in time. But whereas mistakes will be made, do you think that that's an important part of leadership in that you have to have an experience of getting things wrong and embracing a learning curve to ultimately develop and improve in your sort of role and your capacity? Yeah, I think it's a very fair point. And uh, I, I, I think that, you know, what we've learned, I mean, in the past, um, you know, about nine years ago, 10 years ago, we purchased a company um, that had gone into administration. Um, so we purchased the assets and that helped us to expand and develop as a business. Um, and that was sort of coming out of, of the financial um, crisis of sort of 2009, 10. Um, but that put a strain under on, on our business, um, which eventually led to us going into a company voluntary arrangement in 2011. Um, and we learned a hell of a lot through that process in terms of you know, being 
knowing what to do um, and the timing of decisions as well, which was was crucial to us at that point because um, we found that we were under pressure to make decisions, but we made those decisions in a timely manner, um, which enabled us to save the business and develop it um, you know, go, you know, take our medicine, as it were, and mm-hmm. then, um, and then get through that. And probably two and a half years later, we were in a position where we picked up a large export order to Saudi Arabia, which really put the um, business back on a, um, a good footing financially. Um, and you know, it was it was a um, a very positive experience coming out of a negative experience. Um, so yes, it's it's uh, you are learning all the time, um, and uh, you know, it's whilst whilst you have these really negative and challenging periods, um, I, I think you know if, if you take the right approach to them then you learn a hell of a lot. It puts you into a good position for the next time you face a challenge, albeit a different one. I suppose there is no substitute for real experience in the uh, the business world, but would you say that throughout your career, Cliff, there's anybody that you've perhaps looked up to that's been a source of inspiration for you? Um, yeah, that's a left, left field one. Um, <laughs> No, uh, in, a, in a word, um, I, I guess you know you see um, the very successful um, business people, um, you know the the Alan Sugars, you know the, the high profile people, the Bransons, and those kind of people. Um, but you don't, I, I personally don't really sort of take anything from them. Um, I, I think if you're taking anything from anybody, it's your peers, it's the people that um, are doing similar things to you. Um, you know, we're a relatively small, essentially family-run business. Um, and, you know, we employ 25, 30 people. We have employed more. We have, we are at the moment employing slightly less. Um, so actually the people that you really lean things from that you uh, get ideas from and that you can bounce off of are your peers who are running similar sorts of businesses so I've never really sort of looked up to or taken inspiration from somebody who's doing something very different at a different scale perhaps. I think it's important to remember that you can look to your peers even in a leadership position because we're not lone wolves. We are never alone and we can bounce off each other and exchange ideas, as you rightly say there. And based upon all of the experience that you have accumulated over the uh, the years, Cliff, if you were to perhaps give some advice to somebody who was maybe about to start out in business, maybe someone going into a leadership role in an established company for the first time, um, what sort of advice would you give them to get them on the road to success? Um, I think it's all about the people that you work with. Um, you know, we, we started our business uh, in the in the typical old fashioned uh, out the back of the garage, um, and uh, you know, grew it from there. Um, but within a relatively short space of time, we were involving other people, employing other people, either directly employing them or um, using you know, contract people who would come in and work for us on an as and when basis but it was the it was the relationships that you developed with those people who you were working closely with that have certainly in our case underpinned the relative success of the business over the years 
um, because you can't do it all on your own and unless you know you, you're working as a self-employed person and very small organization but as soon as you start getting to you know um, involving maybe half a dozen people which which I suppose most people setting up in business um, will end up doing fairly quickly in if their business is relatively successful it's it's all about how you work with those people how you motivate them um, how you bounce off of them how you use their skills their contribution um, and, and work closely with them you know clearly you take the lead you know you set the strategy of the business the direction of the business um, but I think if you recognize and value the contribution that the people you're working with, and I hesitate to use the term employ, um, because we've always taken the view that we're working with people rather than necessarily employing them. That to me has been, been the biggest thing um, for us as, as a business over the years. And now thinking about the next 12 to 18 months specifically, just before we draw things to a close um, on the programme today, Cliff, what is next for you and for the business and what are you really hoping to achieve as we adjust to this new normal way of living and working? Well, I think if you ask that question to most people in business at the moment, the one word answer you're going to get is survival. Um, and and I don't think it's too melodramatic to, to use that term at the moment. Um I think the next three to six months are going to be extremely challenging for, for many, many businesses. Um, and maybe I'll have a telephone conversation with you in six months' time and <laughs> let you know how, we, how we've survived it. Um, but I think really uh, that's what it is. As I say, we're, we're still quite active in, in terms of quoting opportunities and interest from people who want our products and services um, but we're just not seeing um, the level of commitment to placing orders um, that we're going to need to sustain the business um, at, at a sensible level um, we're taking advantage of all the government assistance that we've got uh, that's on offer the loans the deferrals and so on um, and you know we're, we're hoping that that's going to be enough to see us through to probably you know the spring um by by which time hopefully um it there'll be some more confidence back into the economy generally the construction sector specifically for us um, and that workload picks up and if workload picks up then we still manage to retain a, a team of skilled people. We've got people that have been with us for 20, 25 years. Um, and, you know, we want to try and ensure that, you know, we're all going to still be here as a team, you know, in, um, in the spring and moving into the summer of next year. Um, and that, I think, is, is really the, uh, the, the limit of our aspirations for the uh, for the next six to twelve months. Having said all that, if we picked up one or two um, of the larger opportunities that we've you know, got on the on the potential pipeline, uh, we we do export a reasonable amount, and one or two big jobs in the Middle East are potentially there if they come through then it gives us a hell of a lot of breathing space and confidence to move forward so it's very much up in the air but you know we're still hanging in there basically 
And let's hope that it continues to be the case over the course of the next few months and there will be some upward trajectory sooner rather than later as well. Um, as you pinted there, uh, Cliff, we can only really speculate over what may happen in the uh, the next few months. And just given how much of a pleasure it's been welcoming you onto the programme today and also how engaging it's been from my point of view as well, it would be my pleasure to invite you back onto the programme in a few months' time just to see how things are getting along in that respect. Yeah, well, I hope I'm around um, in a business sense to, um, to, to contribute in that way. You know, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this afternoon as well. And I wish you all the best in that sense as well, Cliff. And most importantly as well, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on. Thanks, Scott. I was speaking on today's programme to Cliff McEntee, Charter Surveyor and Director at Chelsea Artisans Limited. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. During his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia, racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew has taken up the role of Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and become a champion for mental health and charitable causes. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew and all of that is of course coming up next. Hello and welcome, I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former Director of Cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here, thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals, and on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... Um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to completely different world almost I'd been I was a Middlesex player I was mm. captain of Middlesex all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later I've scored a test century which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test I mean it was literally the dream so 
And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 years of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role. You know, just in terms of... Because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know... uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it's it just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in 
in seeing England win at something, we're all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for Absolutely. Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived Hold as a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, 
But yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but. What advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading a team? I think so, Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so, I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it very different 
challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed. Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so, numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh cancer anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively 
how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So what, what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot um, of them wear <laughs> red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um 
you know, we're going to have our own uh, short form tournament that will rival the Big Bash, and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I I'm still stumped as to I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I I'm, I'll I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.